Hi, welcome Grace Community. This is Dave Hillis and my son Isaac is here. Hi! We're enjoying our best vacation ever, right? Yeah. Where were we? We're, we're in Washington, D.C. Yes, we're at the nation's capital. What do you think about the capital? It's big. It is big. <laughs> Today we're going to be uh, launching a brand new series called One Prayer, where we're having guest speakers come in while we're away sharing with you what your, their one prayer is for Grace Community Church. We're starting today by having Charlie the Hardy share with us his one prayer for Grace, that we would be a people who embrace those who suffer from mental illness. So today, would you give a warm welcome to Charlie the Hardy. That's very sad. Shortly after that, the Capitol Police came and hauled them away. They were trespassing and so they're still working on bail. <clears throat> Al is uh, redecorating the room for us this morning. Thank you, Al. As David said, we're going to be talking this morning about the question or the topic of mental illness and specifically about how grace can be a place where we reach out to people who have mental illness and help them and make them feel welcome in our community. Mental illness is stigmatized in society and unfortunately in the church as well. Uh, we are afraid of it sometimes. We are embarrassed about it sometimes. And we're, I think, a little too quick to spiritualize it. As a consequence, many people who struggle with mental illness feel embarrassed. They feel ashamed. They feel it difficult to talk about it, and they hide it. What I want us to, to be as a church, and my one prayer for Grace Community Church, is that we be a place where we can be honest about all sorts of brokenness that we have together and be compassionate towards those of us who are suffering, suffering and struggling, um, especially as we pray for their healing. Now, most of you know me as Charlie Lahardy. You may not know me, by the way. Hello, I'm Charlie Lahardy. And, um, but Charlie Lahardy, well, normally I sit in the very back there and I twiddle the knobs and I kind of hide back in the corner, you know, because I'm kind of a corner person, not an upfront person. Um, but Charlie Lahardy is actually my alter ego. Um, it is my identity that's carefully designed to hide my true identity. My true identity is Chasmo, the rock star formerly known as Chasmo. And this is me way, way back then in 1970, long hair, hippie, skinny guy. I sang back then with this group called the New Freedom, and we performed throughout Virginia and North Carolina, singing Christian rock music. And 1969, late 1960s and early 70s was the time when um, the Jesus movement happened. And a bunch of people my age back then began following Jesus and Christian rock music was born. And among the things that happened was that there was this guy named Larry Norman who wrote this or composed this album was released in 1969, the same year that I became a Christian, called Upon This Rock. And Norman was considered, and his album was considered to be the very first contemporary Christian album, the first Christian rock album. He had on there songs like, Why Should the Devil Have All the Good Music? It's a good question. Why should the devil have all the good music? I've never understood that. But, you know, growing up in Texas, as he did in a Southern Baptist church, what he heard over and over again was, rock and roll is of the devil. 
good Christian kids should be listening to hymns. He didn't agree with that, and so he started this genre of music called Christian rock. And so our band played a lot of rock and roll, Christian rock music, and we had a great time together. And of course, a band has a lot of stuff you have to haul from one place to another. So my good friend in the band, David Boone, who played sax and flute for us, bought a 1963 Corvair Greenbrier van, and that's what we used to carry our stuff around. But it was a piece of junk, and it was so bad looking that his dad refused to let him park it in the driveway. So David decided to get it painted. And back then, the place to go if you really wanted a cheap paint job was Earl Scheib. That's right. I'll paint any car, any color for 1995. <laughs> Except that by 1970 it was 49.95, but it was still pretty darn cheap. David could afford it. Now Earl was counting on the fact that you would uh, go to his shop and and he would add on all sorts of extras. But David held his ground and stuck for the 49.95 paint job in robin's egg blue. And the way David tells it is that the the painter took about five minutes to mask the car and then started spraying away. And by the time he was done, there was blue paint on the headlights and blue paint on the doorknobs and on the hubcaps and on the window trim. But from a respectable distance, that van actually looked pretty decent. Earl Scheib had done a miracle. Paint, of course, is just paint, right? And it still leaked oil like crazy. It still pelched blue smoke when it went down the highway. Um, it rattled. And, and in fact, consumer advocate Ralph Nader wrote a book at that time about the Corvair called Unsafe at Any Speed. <laughs> it gives you an idea. We took our lives in our own hands when we rode in that thing. In those days, I think I was kind of like that Corvair van. I looked kind of good on the outside. And when the stage lights would go on, I'd be singing, Jesus is a rock and he rolled my blues away, you know. But then when the lights went out, I was deeply depressed. I was very unhappy. I was ashamed of myself. I was sometimes even suicidal. And it was kind of a weird thing, wasn't it? I was putting on an act. I was a Christian, but I was faking it. And I didn't tell anybody what was really going on, not even my close friends in the band. I hid it because I was ashamed to talk about it. In her book, Love Back to Life, the Christian singer Sheila Walsh, who had a a job for a long time as an on-air host for the 700 Club, talks about her own struggle with depression. She got to the point as she was a host, kind of similar to my story, where she, she began became extremely depressed and extremely despondent and suicidal, but she couldn't tell anybody about it. And finally, she just couldn't take it anymore, and she committed herself to a hospital for treatment. And she found that the people that she worked with, her best friends, wrote her off, stopped, broke contact off with her. And so she wrote this in her book. Today, there's still an incredible stigma attached to any mental illness, whether depression, anxiety, or panic disorders, to name a few. Countless people have told me that they suffered silently for years, afraid to tell anyone how they were feeling. No intelligent person would condemn someone to having a brain tumor, for having a brain tumor. So why do so many people discount or distance themselves from a different form of trouble? Depression will not go away by pretending that it does not exist. 
I'm not going to try to build a theology today of mental illness or sickness, but what I will say is that, especially with mental illness, even today there's a tendency in the church to spiritualize it, to put a spiritual spin on it, to say that mental illness is a result of a defect in your faith or lack of prayer or not surrendering yourself to God sufficiently. And I don't think that's right. I mean, I'm pretty sure that Christians are not somehow subject to less instances of cancer or they have less trouble with heart disease or less trouble with uh, strokes. They have fewer torn ACLs than anybody else. We take the view of all sorts of other illnesses that we are mortals in mortal bodies. They're bodies that are broken by sin and broken by the corruption of this world. And all sorts of ordinary kind of illnesses we think of as normal. And the brain, our most complex organ, the most difficult to understand organ in our bodies, I just don't think we should be surprised when we also are affected by illnesses of the brain, whether it's things like um, debilitating or or decaying sorts of illnesses like Alzheimer's disease or um, invasive sorts of illnesses like brain tumors or psychotic sorts of illnesses like mental health, mental illnesses like schizophrenia, for instance. One day, I may forget your names. I may forget my name, and that would be a tragic thing. But it won't be any sort of an indictment on my faith. Frankly, I've struggled with depression all of my life, and at times it's been completely debilitating. And sometimes, like today, it's in the background somewhere, and I don't even know that it's there. But over my life, I've found that it keeps coming back. It keeps coming back. And I have prayed, and I have prayed, and I have asked God to take it away, and he hasn't done it. Doctors can't say exactly why depression happens. They really don't know. Sometimes it's a result of early childhood experiences, sometimes a result of genetics. In my own case, I I see a lot of contributing factors. For one thing, and a very big factor, was that my father was an alcoholic, and that created a lot of chaos in our family. He he was... um, a difficult person to be around, he was unhappy, he was neglectful, he was self-consumed with his own issues, his own problems, and and the life in our family was chaos because of his illness. One day in 1961, um, his life was spiraling out of control, he couldn't take it anymore, and so he killed himself. And so, as a young boy, all of that chaos and the effects of his death had some sort of effect on me. As I, the truth is, of course, you know, none of us really grow up in fairy tale homes, or very few of us do anyway. Uh, Children are sexually or emotionally abused or neglected by their parents. Um, And adulthood is really no picnic either, is it? I mean, folks go off, soldiers, men go off to war, and they're either wounded or they're frightfully wounded in their hearts by the things that they see. Uh, Women are abused or abandoned by the men that they love. Uh, Children become gravely ill. People die. There are all sorts of things, traumatic, terrible things that happen to us in life, and some of them can lead us down the path to mental illness. The experiences that I had when I was growing up and the choices I made trying to cope with the death of my father and trying to understand myself in the context of the family I grew up with 
led me down a similar path to his. I became deeply ashamed. I became, became convinced that God was ashamed of me. Um, shame led me into anger and bitterness and addiction and hopelessness finally. And at one of my lowest points when I was 17, some friends invited me to, enter, to ask Jesus into my life. And I did that. And I experienced this very dramatic and very remarkable conversion experience. I felt God forgive me. I felt God's love for me. I felt God wash me clean and make me whole and make me right again. And it was a wonderful experience and one that I've never doubted. But at the same time, God didn't wipe away all of the things that were eating at me. He didn't take away all of the things that had wounded me. And I soon found that a lot of these things in my life started dragging me down again like a whirlpool. And I got, gradually got sucked down into hopelessness and depression in the midst of my faith. And I didn't know what to do about it. There's this book in the Old Testament called Lamentations. It's a hard, hard book to read. Um, don't read it if you're, not, if you're feeling sad. <laughs> Go to the Psalms or something like that. <laughs> but it was written in 587 BC, and it's the account of when Babylon came and attacked Jerusalem and took captive the Israelites, rooted them out of Jerusalem, carried them back to Babylon as captives. And so it's, a, it's an emotionally difficult book to read. It's a very traumatic time in the life of the Israelites. But in the middle of the book, there is this amazing verse. Lamentations 3.18, I cry out, my splendor is gone. Everything I had hoped for from the Lord is lost. The thought of my suffering and my homelessness is bitter beyond words. I will never forget this awful time as I grieve over my loss. Yet, I dare to hope when I remember this. The faithful love of the Lord never ends. His mercies never cease. Great is his faithfulness. His mercies begin afresh each morning. Isn't that remarkable? You've probably sung that song not realizing where that actually came from. In the midst of our worst pain, God is faithful. When we go through terrible events, things that are hard to understand, impossible to understand, God is good, God is still present, and we can dare to hope. So I've talked about shame just a little bit. What is shame? In his book, Feeling, Facing Shame, it says, while guilt is a painful feeling of regret and responsibility for one's actions, shame is a painful feeling about oneself as a person. It says there's something wrong with you. You're an embarrassment to people. You are damaged goods. You are worthless. And in the psychology of shame, there's this. In the context of normal development, shame is central to the emergence of alienation, loneliness, inferiority, and perfectionism. It plays a central role in many psychological disorders as well, including depression, paranoia, addiction, and borderline conditions. Do you remember what happened in Genesis when Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit? Genesis 3-7, it says, they felt ashamed and they hid from God. 
Imagine trying to hide from God. It's a tough thing to do. But that's what we want to do. Shame drives us to want to hide. It causes us to want to hide from God. It causes us to want to hide the things that we're ashamed of from other people. And it makes us doubt God's love. Now, if you read the scriptures carefully, you'll find that there are all sorts of people in the Bible who dealt with what today we would probably call depression. Daniel, Elijah, David, Paul, they all experienced very dark times in their lives. Elijah, an amazing person. Um, Here's this guy who performed these incredible miracles, who actually heard the voice of God speaking to him. And yet, in 1 Kings 19, when he was stressed out, he was exhausted, he was afraid, he lay down under this small tree and he begged God to let him die. Sometimes that's where we go when things get really bad. Life overwhelms us. Satan mocks us. He tells us we're unforgivable. We're shameful. God could never love us. What a lie. Memories of traumatic events play out in our dreams and in our waking thoughts. And these kind of things can break our spirits and can lead us into shame. But there's this interesting chapter in uh, Hebrews, the second chapter of Hebrews, where uh, the writer of Hebrews, we always say the writer of Hebrews because we don't have a clue who wrote Hebrews. The writer of Hebrews um, is talking about how God hasn't perfected the world yet and the world is a mess and that Jesus came into the world to reconcile us to God. And then he says this, so now Jesus and the ones he makes holy, that's you and me, have the same father because we've been reconciled. And that is why Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. We now have the same father as Jesus does. And because of that, Jesus is not ashamed of us. And why not? Well, basically because God placed all of our guilt and all of our shame on Jesus on the cross. He took it from us and set us free from it. So today, we're going to look at a passage in the book of Mark. It's the second gospel, chapter 1, verses 39 through 44. And this is what I hope we'll understand today. Some wounds cut a ragged gash through our minds, our hearts, and our souls. They can drain us of hope and fill us with toxic shame. The church must be a refuge where the wounded are welcomed, comforted, and embraced by the unflinching love of Jesus. Let's read together Mark 1, 39 through 44. If you have your Bibles, you can open it up and read it from that. It'll be up here on the screen. There are also some Bibles in the chairs in front of you. Um, And if you don't have a Bible and you would like one, we'd be happy to make a gift of one to you. If you just go out to the uh, guest services center at the end of the service, you can just ask for one and we'll give it to you and we'll be happy to let you take it home with you. Mark 1, 39 through 44. So Jesus traveled throughout the region of Galilee, preaching in the synagogues and casting out demons. A man with leprosy came and knelt in front of Jesus, begging to be healed. If you are willing, you can, make me heal, you can heal me and make me clean, he said. Moved with compassion, Jesus reached out and touched him. I am willing, he said. Be healed. Instantly, the leprosy disappeared and the man was healed. 
Then Jesus sent him on his way with a stern warning. Don't tell anyone about this. Instead, go to the priest and let him examine you. Take along the offering required in the law of Moses for those who have been healed of leprosy. And this will be a public testimony that you have been cleansed. The Old Testament is full of all sorts of practical rules for living that God put there to keep the Israelites healthy and to help them to be to remain focused on him as their provider. And you may not know this, but the entire 13th chapter of the book of Leviticus is all on how to deal with skin diseases. That's kind of weird, isn't it? Skin diseases. But skin diseases were a huge big deal back in the in the Middle East in those days. There were a great many of them were, were incurable. There were a great many of them that were communicable. And so Leviticus 13 talks about how to diagnose them, how to treat them, and what to do in the case of someone contracting an incurable skin disease like leprosy. And there were a lot more of them besides leprosy or what we know as Hansen's disease today. Now, if you fast forward from the Old Testament to the New and Jesus' day, things had warped a little bit people had begun to believe that leprosy was God's punishment for sin. It was assumed that a leper had brought his illness on himself and he deserved what he got because he was a bad person. You remember in John chapter 9, what the disciples said when Jesus healed the blind man? They said, whose sin made this man blind? Was it his sin or his parents' sin? And of course, Jesus' response was, neither. His blindness is so that God could receive glory for his healing. But the view of the day was that illness and disability were punishments from God. An incurable skin disease was devastating. The person was required to pack his bags, leave his family, leave his home, and go off and live in a camp for lepers where he would be isolated. They were never again permitted to go to the temple They were required to let their hair grow long and wear ragged clothing so that at a glance people could see who they were and could stay away from them. And when they were going down the road, they had to shout, unclean, unclean, so that people ahead of them, the good people, would know to scatter and get out of their way. Now you may have noticed this odd thing in the middle of the room here. We've divided the church today into two sections. The west side is walled off from the east side. And I'm very sorry to have to tell you, but those of you on this side of the room have leprosy. Yes, it's true. It's sad but true. We have isolated you from the good people over here as a health precaution so that you won't infect them. And don't worry, this barrier is impervious to whatever it is they've got. And I'm sure if you guys think about it just a little bit, you know what it is you did to tick God off at you. Now, just so that the good people over here can tell that you're close, I would like you all to yell, unclean, unclean. Go ahead. Good, good. Okay, you know to keep your distance from these people over here. Now, if you people over here could just see the good folks on this church over here, today and today only, we've exchanged their uncomfortable chairs for those kind of little massaging recliners, you know, and so they're enjoying themselves over here. In in a few minutes, we're going to be passing out little finger sandwiches and donuts for all the good people of the church over here, but you lepers, in a moment, the ushers are going to come and take your chairs away because we figure the floor is good enough for you. 
So here's your situation. You have an incurable illness. You're stuck. You're isolated from your church, your family. You cannot get, be in contact with them any longer. There is no hope for you. And now maybe you understand a little bit of the situation that the leper was in when he came to Jesus. You people over here, you're clearly favored by God. God has smiled on you. God loves you. You are blessed. You good people. God, God thinks you're just the best. The best there is. Not like these despicable lepers over here. And so there's a bit of a pride thing that goes on too, right? I don't have leprosy. I'm doing fine. My family is good. I'm better than these people, these sinners. God must love me very much. So you've been cut off, and only a miracle can restore you. And how often do miracles happen after all? Let's look at what the leper experienced, the humiliation and the shame that he exhibits when he comes to, to Jesus in verse 40. A man with leprosy came, and he knelt in front of Jesus, begging to be healed. If you are willing, you can heal me and make me clean, he said. I think the leper shows quite a lot of courage, frankly, given his disease, given the public attitude towards him, to come to Jesus. And I'm sure he freaked out the good people who were surrounding Jesus. He falls to his knees. He's in the dust. He's showing his humble attitude. He probably looks down. He probably doesn't dare to look in Jesus' face. He begs, it says. Have you ever had to beg someone, someone in power, to give you something that you needed and you couldn't have? The leper knows that his only hope is if Jesus will do this miracle for him. And so he drops to his knees and he begs. And he says, if you are willing... And this is what shame sounds like, I think. Jesus, frankly, may not be willing. Most likely, Jesus is going to skirt around this person and take off and get as far away from him as he possibly can because he's wretched, because he's diseased, because he's a sinner. Why would Jesus want to associate with a diseased sinner? He doesn't seem to doubt Jesus' ability. He says, if you're willing, you can heal me and make me clean. It's his willingness that he doubts because he's been feared all of his life. He's been ostracized all of his life. Shame separates us from God as surely as this barrier divides our church today. Abuse victims often believe that God is repulsed by them. They often blame themselves for the abuse that has been heaped on them by others. Many who suffer from mental illness feel as if God has judged them found them wanting, abandoned them. They feel spiritually isolated. And when they sit here in church, they often feel like black sheep. They often feel like they don't belong, like if anybody really knew who I was, they'd throw me out of this place. Given everything we know about the times, we should probably expect Jesus to turn away from this man. But of course, Jesus surprises us and doesn't do that. Let's take a look at verse 41. Moved with compassion, Jesus reached out and touched him. I am willing, he said, be healed. He reached out and touched him. I see this as a model that we can 
build on as a church. Um, I see this as a guide to show us how to respond to folks who are hurting. Jesus responded to the leper in three ways. First of all, he felt. He let his heart connect with the leper. Secondly, he touched. He actually risked contact with the leper. And thirdly, he restored. Jesus tore down the barrier that separated the leper and restored him to his family, to his church, to his community, sent him back where he wanted to be. Let's look at these in, uh, in reverse order, just to be different. Jesus restored the leper. The leper was a social pariah. He had no reason to expect to be healed. He had nothing, no reason to deserve to be healed. He didn't have anything going for him. No, no, um, nothing, no bargaining chips, right? He was trapped in his circumstances. He was completely powerless. He was dependent on a miracle. And yet, Jesus healed him. And in doing so, he restored him to his place in his community. And this is what grace looks like. Because this is exactly the position that we always find ourselves in when we approach God. We come to God expecting his favor or hoping for his favor, but not expecting it, not deserving it. We approach him with a great need, our sin, and nothing to bargain with at all. And God freely washes us clean and takes away our shame and gives us back our dignity. That's the ordinary working of grace in all of our lives. Jesus forgives you not because of something that you've got that makes him want you or make you deserve to be forgiven, but because he loves you and his love alone is enough to take you back, to forgive you, to restore you. The writer of Hebrews says, chapter 4, verse 16, Let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God, and there we will receive his mercy, and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. So the leper came boldly to Jesus, and Jesus restored him. And grace is, I think, but needs to continue to be a church where people who are alienated from God are restored to God, particularly people who believe that they're too damaged to fit in, too sinful to ever be accepted by God or the church. The next thing he did, he touched. Now the leper, you can imagine, was probably filthy. He was certainly infectious. Um, And Jesus could have healed him from a safe distance with the word. Be healed. Go on your way. But he didn't do that. He didn't do that. That's not Jesus' way. I wonder when he felt that touch of Jesus, how long it had been since that man had ever felt the physical touch of anybody else in his life. God is not ashamed of us. God sees us exactly as as we are, and he loves us exactly as we are. He does not feel the need to maintain a safe distance from you because he loves you. He joins us in the muck and craziness of our lives. He comes right alongside us. He puts his arm around us, and he says, I'm with you. I'm with you. The lowest caste in Hinduism is a group of people called the untouchables. And they're called that because they do the kind of work that the upper caste refuse to do. It's too disgusting for anybody else to do. They're the untouchables. But there are no untouchables in Christianity. Do you know that? 
Jesus never held any sinner at arm's length. He never held any sick person at arm's length. And there's something about a touch that can communicate love better than a hundred words. And sometimes there's nothing so eloquent as a touch to be able to communicate love. Jesus felt, and I think this is one of the hardest parts of what we see him doing with the leper. It asks us to invest something of ourselves in another person. I can imagine Jesus kind of taking an assembly line approach where he says, okay, all you sick people line up and he walks down, runs down, heal, 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 heal. And he never takes any time to make eye contact and he never takes any time to engage with them personally, but that wasn't the way he was. He stopped, he talked to the leper, he listened to the leper, he gave them his time and he made an emotional connection with the leper, leper who was a complete stranger, by the way. Traumatic events can leave us feeling isolated and alone. We tell ourselves that no one could possibly understand what we're going through, or we're too embarrassed to talk about it. We say, nobody could possibly be interested in my problems. Or sometimes people say the wrong things, don't they? Unintentionally, they have good intentions, but they just don't manage to say the things that will really help us. Or sometimes we're too busy and we don't even notice that somebody has a need. And so we feel isolated, we feel alone, we feel like we're behind a barrier, struggling, and the good people on the other side over here are doing well and, and we're stuck. But Galatians 6.2 tells us that we need to bear one another's burdens. What does that mean? How do we do that? We need to figure out, I think, how to do that and become a place where, at the very least, we give people time, we listen to them, we connect to them, we feel what they're going through. So in the few minutes they were together, Jesus observed the leper, he heard the leper, he understood his need, and he allowed himself to be touched by the leper's pain. Now, there's actually a little uncertainty about how to translate this passage. Um, in most of your Bibles, it says that Jesus was moved by compassion or pity or concern for the man. But in one translation, the NIV, which goes back to a very old manuscript, it says Jesus was indignant. In other words, he was ticked off. He was livid. And so the question is, if that translation is accurate, what was he angry about? Why was he angry? If you look at the passage, it's pretty clear he wasn't angry at the leper. He teach, te treats him with compassion and respect and kindness, and he does what he asks. And some of the um, commentaries say that perhaps Jesus was angry at leprosy itself because Jesus' ministry was to reconcile the world to God. And here was a vivid example of how the world was fractured, how people had been broken apart, how disease had caused people to be separated from God, brought away from God, taken away from God. And so at that moment, Jesus maybe was angry at the way sin had corrupted God's creation. Whether he was angry or whether he felt pity for the man, these are both very strong emotions. And what we can take away from this is that Jesus allowed himself to make a connection with this leper at a very deep human level. He allowed himself to be affected by the man's illness, the man's situation. If the church is a hospital, we can't keep our distance from hurting people. We can't avoid emotional entanglement. We can't hang out in the visitor's room where it's safe and hope that we don't have to get too close to the sick people. 
We need to be willing to listen, to engage, to connect, and we need to figure out what it means to help carry each other's burdens. Jesus prayed that we would be one, didn't he? And we know that we're frequently not one, that we're divided by things like politics and race and cultural traditions and even doctrine. We're divided by all sorts of things, and frankly, we have to work to create the unity that Jesus prayed for. We have to work at it. And if this is going to be a place where the sick and the healthy can have fellowship together, where people who are struggling and people who have it all together can, can get together and fellowship in the same place, then we have to work to take down the barriers like shame that separate us, that keep us apart. And so let's start by taking down this beautiful barrier that we put up here this morning. Thank you, Al. Some of us have formed a support group for men and women who suffer with depression, bipolar disease, and anxiety disorder, and all sorts of similar mental health issues. We call it Hope Spring, and we call it that because uh, we meet together to remind each other that God is the source of hope for all of us. And it's a place where we can talk about the struggles that we're going through in a safe environment, a place where we have confidentiality, where we can care for each other, where we can talk with people who have experienced similar things and understand. Um, and it's a place where we can talk about where we're finding hope. Um, you'll find my contact information in the your sermon notes this morning, my name, my email address, phone number, and so on. If you're interested in Hope Spring or you know somebody who might be interested in coming to Hope Spring, have them get in touch with me or get in touch with me yourself. I'd be happy to talk more with you about the, the group and what we're trying to do. <clears throat> I said earlier that the church must be a refuge where the wounded are welcomed, comforted, and embraced by the unflinching love of Jesus. And I said that my one prayer for Grace Church is that we would be a place where we can be honest about our brokenness and compassionate towards the wounded as we pray for their healing. So how can we make that happen? Well, I want to close this morning with a passage from 2 Corinthians 1, verses 3 and 4. Let's read it together. It says, All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, God is our merciful Father and the source of all comfort. He comforts us in all of our troubles so that we can comfort others. When they are troubled, we will be able to give them the same comfort that God has given us. So God is the source of all comfort, it says. Now the word comfort in this passage uh, means to come alongside of someone, to embrace them, to walk with them through life. You can think, for instance, of the Good Samaritan. That's exactly what comfort is supposed to look like. And in fact, the noun form of this verb to comfort, you can go ahead and leave that slide up there a little bit longer. Uh, the noun form of the verb comfort is the same word that Jesus uses to describe the Holy Spirit. He is our comforter. He's the one that walks alongside of us in life, who joins us in life and all, all the good and bad experiences that we go through. Paul writes that God himself is the spring from all, which all comfort flows. Only God has what it takes to heal our wounds. And so he says, God is the source of all comfort. He comforts us in all of our troubles. But then what does he say? So that we can comfort others. 
when they are troubled, we will be able to give them the same comfort God has given us. So comfort is there for our benefit, but comfort is also God expects us to pay it forward, to give it to others, to experience it, and then to share it with others. And in doing so, we comfort others just as God has comforted us. And that's the way where the church is supposed to work together as a body. As we do that, we can bring God's healing and hope to people like the leper who feel cut off from the church and from God's love. The priest and writer Henry Nowen put it this way, Community is a fellowship of people who do not hide their joys and sorrows, but make them visible to each other in a gesture of hope. In community, we say life is full of gains and losses, joys and sorrows, ups and downs, but we do not have to live it alone. Together, we can celebrate the truth that the wounds of our individual lives, which seem intolerable when lived alone, become sources of healing when we live them as part of a fellowship of mutual care. Leprosy is no longer a serious problem, and I'm pleased to tell you that you folks, in fact, have been cured. You no longer have leprosy. Go home at peace. Do not concern yourself with it. But mental illness is still a very serious problem in our world, and also in the church. Is grace a place where we can talk honestly about our brokenness without shame? Is it a place where hurting people can find compassion and understanding and comfort and hope? And is grace a place where we can be so well connected to each other that we can see when a smile is just spray-painted on? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come to you as people who have a long history of not doing very well in life, of not pleasing you, of not living according to your laws. And yet, Lord, we know that you have forgiven us, that you have poured your grace into our lives, you have cleansed us, and you've brought us into fellowship today because of your grace, because of the cross, because of what your son Jesus did. And yet, Despite that, there are those among us who, through the illnesses they suffer, through their history, through their past, still feel separated from you, still feel like you don't love them, still feel ashamed, still feel as though you are ashamed of them. How can we comfort those people, Father? How can we help them to know the depths of your love the depths of your grace. Lord, I pray today that if there's anyone here who is in that place, that they would experience your coming alongside of them and comforting them. They would experience your acceptance, that they would take to heart that you are not ashamed of us. And I pray that you would help us as a community to reach out to each other, to encourage each other, to help each other when we go through trauma, trials, difficulties, and through the long, long battles that we face with mental illness. Heavenly Father, we, we come before you needing you, needing your love, needing your help. 
begging for your, your goodness in our lives. And in fact, we come to you as people who have experienced your goodness and your grace. Thank you. Heal us, Father. Draw us together as a family. Give us comfort and give us joy in each other's presence and make us a place where we can be open about our brokenness and we can find healing and hope. In Jesus' name, amen.